RTHK. Going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. A triple dead recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Mainland markets suffered their biggest drop in four months. U.S. stocks slipped from near records before an update on economic growth. The dollar climbed to a 12-year high versus the yen after Japan warned against currency depreciation. And European equities fell as concerns mounted over Greece. The Shanghai Composite has slumped 6.5%. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll ask CIBC's Patrick Bennett why. SC Lowy's Michelle Lowy joins us then to talk about the impact of China's slowdown on high-yield bonds. And our last segment this morning focuses on how the investment profession can restore trust from investors. We'll talk with CFA Institute's Paul Smith. Peter Churchhouse of the Churchhouse Letter joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Radio. So, Peter, the Shanghai Composite has slumped uh, more than 6%. Is it time to buy Chinese equities? Uh, well, I, I think at the moment there's more sellers and buyers uh, for the time being. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, we're still up 43% for the year to date so far. So uh, uh, my sense here is that uh, that the, the, the market is really uh, manipulated, controlled by, by the central government, as we know. Uh, it's very convenient for them to have the market going up uh, for the last nine months or so. Uh, but um, it's, it's the same old story with China. It's uh, uh, they want to put their it's a stop go policy in just about everything they do. They put their foot on the accelerator pedal. The car starts rolling a bit too quickly, so they put their foot on the brake pedal again. Uh, and in this instance, I think perhaps um, margin lending has been uh, one of the issues which mm. has, has has brought things back under control. Okay, well, hold that thought. We'll be uh, discussing more of that with Patrick uh, Bennett later in the morning. Um, let's take a look at U.S. stocks first. Uh, Wall Street stocks ended slightly lower on jitters about a possible Greek exit from the Eurozone. The Dow dropped 36 points to 18,126. The S&P fell a tenth of a percent to 2,120, while the Nasdaq ended a fifth of a percent down at 5,097. International Monetary Fund Chief Christine Lagarde warned yesterday of the potential for a Greek exit of the Eurozone, saying this would not be a war in the park for the single currency area. Now, Nobel Rubini is the chairman of Rubini Global Economics and a professor at uh, NYU's Stern School of Business. He's, he was present at the G7 meeting of finance ministers and central bankers in Dresden. And he says that the prospects for a resolution between Greece and its creditors are looking good. My sense of it is that the two sides are moving in the right direction. First of all, there is a dialogue. There is proposal on both sides. There are still differences, but those differences can be narrowed. And both sides realize that if there was a Greek accident, mispayment, let alone Greek exit, there'll be significant damage, first of all, for Greece, but also the risk of contagion for the rest of the world. 
And it's not just economic and financial risks, but there are also geopolitical risks that are very important you have to address. So at least I see a sense of something more constructive, of moving in the right direction. I do expect that pots of money are going to be found in June to make sure that the $1.6 billion that is owed to the IMF is going to be paid between June 5th and 19th. And hopefully by the end of June, there can be an agreement on deficit, on debt, on structural reform. It's going to be the condition for closing the review of the second program and the basis for a third program that Greece needs. Here in Hong Kong, shares ended 2.2% lower given the plunge in mainland markets. The Hang Seng Index lost 626 points to close at 27,454. The Shanghai Composite slumped 6.5% to 4,620. The Shanghai market had surged 52% so far this year as of Wednesday um, and uh, 43% to date, as uh, Peter mentioned a little bit earlier when it closed uh, at its highest level in January 2008. Bloomberg's uh, Julie Hyman examines the Chinese markets further. That high that we saw for the Shanghai Composite was the highest that we have seen in years. It's up 125%, by the way, in that period, even including the drop that we have seen recently. There's a lot of debate now over the stimulus that we have seen in China and whether it will now be tightened. Something else that's interesting, the turnover on China's stock exchanges that is now surging past the U.S. Now, consider for a moment the size of the U.S. market versus the size of the Chinese market. Chinese shares valued at about $9.3 trillion on Wednesday. Here in the U.S., you're talking about $25 trillion. So that's the value, value of all shares. But what about the turnover? What about the volume in all shares? Uh, we saw it in Shanghai and Shenzhen, $380 billion on Thursday, $132 billion here in the U.S. So far above all of the volume, all of the turnover, all of the trading that you're seeing as there's perhaps... I don't know if you want to call it a panic, but certainly a lot of concern with that 6.5% drop. FTSE and MSCI have announced that they will include Chinese shares in their emerging market indices. North Grove Capital founder Gabriel Wallach says that it's a huge change for the Chinese equity market. Uh, currently around 25% in, in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Uh, if you include A shares and foreign listed shares, that may increase to 45%. Obviously the largest market in, in emerging markets. Uh, this is from 5% just 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the inclusion by MSCI and FTSE uh, most recently, or the announcements that they will include them over the next year or two, uh, are significant moves uh, in uh, certainly future liquidity coming from overseas investors. Uh, all, they will also be included in the um, all-country world index uh, to some extent. Um, So there's trillions of dollars under management that will need to allocate to both A shares uh, as well as other listed Chinese companies. But can the Chinese government successfully manage the the growth of its stock market? Here's Wallach again. I, I will say that the Chinese equity market, as defined by MSCI China or even Shanghai, uh, has been in a bear market uh, since 2007. It peaked uh, quite a while ago, similar to uh, other indices in emerging markets, and has only recently started to uh, to rally, uh, both for uh, liquidity reasons. Uh, the government is certainly not discouraging investment in equities, uh, but also for fundamental reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. Earnings have been very strong in uh, some of the major sectors in, in China. Sanibel Captiva Trust's Pat Dorsey has a bit of a different view, though. He says that China's asset bubble is scary. China keeps me up at night, honestly, because, uh, no, I mean, really, I mean, it is utterly bananas what's going on over there. 
And the even scarier thing is that reasonably soon, in the next couple of years, you know, the big index companies like MSCI are going to have to include Chinese A shares meaningfully in huge indexes like the MSCI Emerging Markets. Mm -hmm. And that means that index trackers will be forced to buy clearly fraudulent businesses. Right. That's kind of scary. Oh. All right, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, Patrick Bennett, who is an FX strategist at CIBC, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. Good morning, Patrick. Good morning. So, Patrick, uh, what do you think has accounted for this major plunge on the Shanghai Composite yesterday? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, obviously causing uh, a lot of attention out there, and I think that's right. Look, look first off, I agree with what, uh, what Peter said earlier. Uh, the markets are on a, a very, uh, on a fairly short leash there. Uh, I was actually in Shanghai yesterday, and uh, I was reading the, the Shanghai papers yesterday morning, and there was a, there was an article there uh, talking about how the young people had invested in the share market, and the older people in the, in China warning them that uh, stocks don't just go up; uh, they can also go down. And so perhaps there was something in that that there was a, a cautionary tale in the local press yesterday. So there's just some heat coming out of the market. But I think uh, with a lot of things, it, it depends how close you stand to your screen. Uh, you know, if you stand and, you, and you, you put your nose on the screen, then you can see the volatility, you know, day to day. If you, if you take a few steps back and you can see a trend, and the trend has been that the Chinese stock market has been performing very, very strongly this year. And look, we think that's appropriate. Uh, we think the economy is doing just fine. Uh, we think the concerns out there are, are overplayed. And as I say, I was in China this week, and uh, you know what we saw in speaking to regulators and, and policymakers, you know, we have reason for, for optimism there. And one of your early speakers as well, uh, Julie uh, Hyman, was talking about the size of the market uh, in China. If we consider the size, of, the size of the economy in China and the size of the economy in the U.S., we could say that the Chinese uh, equities are, in fact, uh, undervalued on a long-term basis. So you know, we would expect that we get some uh, some settling in this uh, in this volatility. Patrick, what do you make of the fact that you know uh, Julie? pointed out earlier that the, the size of the U.S. equity market is so much bigger. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the volume of turnover in China was so much more. What do you make of that? Well, look, that's right. Uh, you know, if you look at, uh, if you want to consider technical analysis, people say that, you know, high volume often happens at, uh, at turning points. We don't think this is a major, a major turning point. Uh, certainly there's been a lot of participation in the market. The, uh, the authorities, the policies, policymakers, the, the government have been, uh, have been happy for that to be happening. Uh, but certainly there's been some, uh, some speculative uh, you know, froth in this market. Uh, but we say if we take a couple of steps back and, and consider the trend, then there is, uh, you know, there's still reason for optimism for, uh, for good, for good uh, companies and, and good equities. Peter, do you think that this is a reminder that leverage has a downside? Well, of course, when you have a market which is driven to a large extent by leverage, in this case margin trading, uh, you're always going ha to have a problem at some point. And I think uh, that's, um, <clears throat> that's very much the case here where we're seeing the margin lending has been reined in by the brokers. But um, I I'd just kind of like to ask Patrick, because he's a currency specialist uh, generally, um, <clears throat> where does he see the RMB going at the moment? Because we've seen in the States a lot of uh, criticism from politicians perhaps misplaced in my view, but uh, that the renminbi is artificially manipulated. Where, where does he see this heading over the course of the next 12 months? Sure, thanks. Uh, look, I think stability is the first uh, is the first watchword. Uh, China clearly wants to be uh, included in the uh, in the SDR. It's uh, moving towards uh, internet internationalisation of the currency. 
Uh, and so on the one hand, encouraging uh, investors, uh, institution, uh, institutions and traders to, to hold the currency. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, managing an depreciation doesn't, you know, doesn't work out. So we think it's going to be stable. Uh, I also think there's room for further appreciation from here. But I think the levels of that were probably quite modest. Uh, you know, there's still more money wanting to go into China than there is wanting to come out uh, until we reach a, a stronger level of the currency where that balance of, of inflow and outflow is, uh, is matched, uh, then I think it's uh, still room to look for further some modest appreciation. Patrick, we've got a situation, um, you know, globally where we've got this really strong dollar, right, compared to uh, most of the other currencies. And, uh, of course, we understand the impact of that strong dollar on, you know, Chinese companies, specifically those that export. But what about Chinese stocks? Well, look, I think, yes, of course, it, it depends whether the currency, any asset depends what uh, what currency you're denominating it in. Uh, uh, again, back to my earlier point about depends how, you know, how close you put your nose to the screen. The dollar is strong, but it's not strong on a histor- it's not strong on a historical basis. The Chinese currency is strong on a historical basis, but that's coming from a level where, where people have wanted to demand it. I think it matters. Uh, I think there's sometimes a bit of a misnomer when we talk about currencies and exports. It's, it's very fashionable for policymakers to say, well, look, I'm going to weaken my currency and boost my exports. But really, exports are first and foremost about demand until you have demand the, the price doesn't really you know doesn't really come into it if we look what happened in japan and the currency's weakened very sharply but the volume of exports it hasn't changed considerably well that's an interesting point on japan because if you see over the last uh, umpteen numbers of years uh, since the 70s the the yen has gone from around 340 yen to the dollar uh, down to about 80 at the at the at the peak and, uh, and and still Japan has been one of the great exporters of the world. So I'm not convinced that over the long term the currency uh, really drives exports at all. No, look, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I, look, I'm, I'm very much of that opinion and, uh, and, and try and impress that on our, on our clients and our, uh, and our, our colleagues uh, you know, when, when we can. Uh, yeah, exports are about demand. They're about having a good product that people want to buy. All right, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Patrick Bennett, and he is an FX strategist at the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. Let's take a look at the numbers now. The Nikkei is down two-tenths of a percent to 20,508. Australia's ASX 200 is up 0.05% to 5,717. And Seoul's Kospi down 0.14% to 2,107. In current one euro is currently valued at 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar will buy you 123.84 yen. And one pound sterling gives you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 87 cents. The Electoral Affairs Commission is consulting the public on the provisional recommendations on the boundaries and names of geographical constituencies for the 2016 Legislative Council election. You're invited to submit your views on the proposals by June 19th or attend the public forum on June 11th. The provisional recommendations can be viewed at the Commission's website, www.eac.gov.hk, district offices, and other specified locations. For inquiries, please call 2827-1269. The time is now 8.18 a.m. And uh, China's effort to avoid a regional debt crisis by allowing municipal bonds is reviving demand for the securities that they will replace. Our next guest on the show is fixed income specialist S.C. Lowy's CEO, Michelle Lowy. Good morning, Michelle. 
Anita. So, Michelle, notes uh, issued by local government financing vehicles were created to sidestep a previous ban on direct debt issuance by regional authorities. And they're rallying as sales decline and higher yields that they offer are becoming harder to find. What do you make of this? Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an indication of the start of a cycle where the, the local fixed income market in China is going to have to open up at some point um, because of the lack of, of liquidity and, and financing available in the system. Um, as always in China, uh, it's always related to, to, to different factors. So if you think about it, the, the, the budget of municipalities in China for the longest time was financed by sales of real estate and of land. And with the slowdown in real estate, local governments have to find alternative uh, ways to fund their, their budget deficits. Now, Michelle, uh, you say that the trickle of Chinese bond defaults in recent weeks has been a reminder that uh, the economic slowdown is inflicting real distress, you know, despite you know, what we're seeing with the soaring stock market. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, indeed. What, what, what you've seen over the last few years in China whether it's the onshore bond market or the offshore bond market, is, is very little default, very little uh, issues with plenty of liquidity. And now that we're seeing an economic slowdown, we're seeing banks being under pressure, it's becoming a lot harder for some corp- corporates to refinance themselves. And, and obviously this is only the start because you are in an environment where interest rates are quality at zero. So the only corporates that, that are struggling to refinance themselves are, are really struggling, uh, and, and any change in interest rate will, will increase that, uh, that, uh, that problem dramatically. Peter? Michelle, uh, just a quick question. Coming back to this municipal debt uh, swap that we're seeing being done in China at the moment, I, I was a, at a conference just uh, recently and a couple of the panelists uh, up in front of us there, one was a government uh, official from, I'm not quite sure which organization, there was another academic up there, and there were a couple of other private sector economists. And uh, the, the, the two government guys and the academics basically said, this is, what we're doing is not QE. This is not quantitative easing um, uh, in, the, in the sense of the U.S. But uh, the two economists went on to speak and say, basically, this is QE. Uh, h- how do you see it? Well, it, uh, it absolutely is QE, right? I mean, we, we've seen governments globally um, talking about the fact that they, they, they were not doing any quantitative easing because obviously once the market participants are aware of the problem, it, it only ma- magnifies the problem. So, so, so as a government official, you're going to try to limit as much as you can the perception that there is a real problem, uh, but indeed there is a real problem and, and there is a need for, for, for liquidity in, in the system. Now, Michelle, uh, in, in talking about uh, the bond defaults, I mean, the high-yield high uh, bond defaults, do you think that there is a considerable risk or a risk at all of contagion? Um, I, I don't think there is per se a risk of contagion. I don't think that one default uh, leads to the next default. What I do think, though, is that the, the high 
high-yield bond market, especially the, the, the offshore high-yield bond market, has been overpriced for a number of years. Um, there's been a perception in, in Asia, especially in, in, in with Chinese offshore bonds, that defaults were not going to take place, that the government was going to step in. Uh, and it is a very opaque market, mm. um, and, and, and certainly that perception is changing. And, and, and like in, in, in every market, you know, you've had a perception for a number of years that defaults were not occurring, that default rates in, in Asia were going to be significantly lower than in the rest of the world for the high-yield market. Um, I do think that in the second half of the year, we may find ourselves in a different situation where investors globally pull money out of Asia as a result of, of, of the lack of visibility on, on what's happening and, and the recent uh, Gaza defaults and, and all of the saga surrounding Gaza is, is just a reminder that when it comes to Chinese high-yield bond market, uh, traditional analytical skills don't necessarily apply. All right, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Michelle Lowy, and he is the CEO of SC Lowy. It is Friday indeed and almost, almost the weekend. The time is now 8.24 a.m. And with stories like uh, Hanergy and Golden hot off the press, investors are increasingly concerned about the safety of their money and uh, asking the question as to how the investment profession will restore trust uh, from investors. Uh, to talk about this, we're joined now by CFA Institute's CEO, Paul Smith. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. So, Paul, you know, what are what would you say are the implications of recent market developments and innovations like the Stock Connect program? Uh, how do they impact uh, the future of the investment profession? Well, I'm very positive about Stock Connect and, uh, and obviously last week's announcement on mutual fund recognition. I think those things are enormously helpful to the international community and specifically to us here in Hong Kong in terms of our investment management industry. They open up um, what will become the world's largest pool of savings. So uh, it couldn't be more exciting for us. Do you see more people in the investment profession being employed, more talent coming into Hong Kong and China as a result of all this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you're already seeing that. The demand for China A-share analysts in China and in here in Hong Kong uh, is up very substantially, and the supply cannot meet the demand at the moment. So there's a, a substantial period of, uh, uh, of imbalance there, and that will obviously pull um, more people in uh, and also um, uh, encourage a lot of people to sort of change their analytical disciplines, as it were, move, move perhaps from Pan-Asia uh, or other markets in Asia to, to looking exclusively at China. Peter? Paul, the, um, the CFA, as we know, is a, a, a well-respected uh, worldwide uh, organization for analysts in the financial industry. Um, I, I'm just wondering, if we look at the financial industry, the cachet of the old MBA uh, that uh, everybody said you had to have uh, 10 years ago in the finance industry, the cachet of the MBA is waning. It's, it's dissipating around the world. Do you think there's a risk of that with the CFA at all? Um, I don't think so. When you look at our penetration rates, 
Peter, um, alas, I wish we had been, you know, we've been going 60 years, I wish we'd been more successful uh, than we have been. Um, globally, we still only have about 5% penetration of all people who touch money, either as an analyst or as a portfolio manager, uh, which really is uh, is not great. I think people think we're far more successful than we are because CFAs tend to sort of punch above their weights, as you very kindly kindly said. But um, you know, there are 95% of everybody working in this industry who touches client money that that does not have uh, a CFA. Now, Paul, to this question uh, of how can the investment profession restore trust? from investors. Uh, Is the local authority, the current local authority, setting the bar too low for those who enter the profession and claim to be financial advisors? I I believe so. I think there's a sort of uh, an unholy allowance, really, between the big end of town and uh, the regulators. Uh, I don't think it's it's a a conscious decision, but what's happening is that... um, uh, through lobbying pressure, the argument has been that if you set the standards of education too high, then too many people will uh, lose their jobs or be unable to uh, continue with their current function, and we won't be able to get enough people through the door to meet um, market requirements. I mean, for instance, in the private wealth management world, um, the estimate is that we need another 200,000 private bankers in Asia over the next few years. Where are we going to get them from if we set educational standards too high? Um, yes, that's true on one level, but, but you know we're in a race to the bottom if we believe that just getting bums on seats is the right way to go in terms of serving the investing public. Um, we believe in the absolute standard that we have set uh, as uh, uh, an institute, and we very much want the regulators to recognize that and, and raise standards rather than lower them to empower an industry that is obviously in trouble and failing to connect with its end user. Long road ahead. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Paul Smith, and he is the CEO of the CFA Institute. Let's take a quick look at the numbers. Uh, Once again, the Nikkei is up a quarter of a percent to 20,603. Australia's ASX 200 is up uh, nine-tenths of a percent to 5,765. And Seoul's Kospi also up three-tenths of a percent to 2,117. Gold currently stands at $1,188.90 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $62.95 per barrel. Well, here we are at uh, the end of the show and at the end of the week. Uh, Peter, what would you say that we should have our eyes on uh, this weekend uh, before we go into the next week? Well, obviously, it's all to do with China in this part of the world, that's for sure. So uh, if we see any kind of regulatory uh, pronouncements coming out of China. I think uh, that'll be what helps drive the markets um, uh, over the next uh, week or so. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for joining us as guest host this morning. That's Peter Churchhouse. He is the author of The Churchhouse Letter. And a big thank you also to Sandra Lamb, our producer for Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for the week. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast for today, which will be mainly fine, isolated showers in the morning and very hot during the day. The temperature right now is 29 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 81%. Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. 
Thailand will host an international summit today to discuss the migrant crisis in Southeast Asia. More than 20,000 people are estimated to have set sail from the Bay of Bengal in the first three months of this year alone. Radio Australia's Samantha Hawley reports. Representatives from 17 nations, including Australia, will participate, but there's scepticism about just what can be achieved. The International Organisation for Migration estimates 2,000 Bangladeshi and Rohingya migrants are still stranded at sea. Almost 4,000 have now come ashore, mainly in Malaysia and Indonesia. Australia's been criticised for its refusal to offer resettlement to those deemed to be genuine refugees. Myanmar has reluctantly agreed to attend the Bangkok meeting, but doesn't recognise Rohingya Muslims as its citizens. President Obama says climate change is making natural disasters worse. Mr Obama was visiting the United Nations National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, ahead of the annual storm season. He says the country has improved technology, making it better prepared than ever for the storms of today. We're also focusing on making ourselves more resilient to the impacts of a changing climate uh, that are having uh, significant effects on uh, both the pace and intensity of some of these storms. In a whirlwind tour of European capitals aimed at securing support for his proposed EU reforms, the British Prime Minister David Cameron has met President Francois Hollande in Paris. At a joint news conference, Mr Hollande said they would discuss Mr Cameron's proposals. Mr Cameron said the status quo wasn't good enough. I believe there are changes we can make that